This is Radio Parallax, a slightly different perspective from a slightly different view, with topics that include matters in science, technology, history, politics, current events, and whatever we damn well please. And now the host of Radio Parallax, Douglas Everett. Welcome to the program. In our second segment today, we're going to have a rather special guest talking about an unusual topic, Cold War Naval Espionage. This came about because of a book we were sent at KDVS, unsolicited book uh, by a publicist uh, advertising a book called Hide and Seek, The Untold Story of Cold War Naval Espionage. This is not a subject I'm expert on, but we did locate an expert with whom we will speak in our second segment today. If you enjoyed the movie or book The Hunt for Red October, or uh, watch the Military Channel, which I think, you know, is something most guys do now and again on late-night television, you will uh, surely find this to be an interesting topic. In fact, we're counting on that in our second segment today. But first, let's begin the program as we like to do with On This Date in History. Our date in question is the 11th of August. We should note that we are still near the peak of the Perseid meteor shower, so you may want to go out tonight, especially after midnight, and see if you can't see a few. The full moon, or nearly full moon, is unfortunately going to interfere with the show in the sky a bit, but uh, you should still see a few, so I'd say give it a whack. The Perseids are one of the most reliable of the meteor showers and coincides with where we live here in North America anyway with uh, good weather. Check it out. But to review as we like to do this date in history, we would take note of the fact that it was on August 11th in 1860 that the United States first successful silver mine began operations near Virginia City, Nevada. The remnants of that boomtown, Virginia City, is still a Nevada tourist attraction. At one point working for the local newspaper was the great Mark Twain. Twain later packed his bags, moved west into Sacramento, where he worked here for the Sacramento Union. In fact, it was on assignment for the Union that he went to Hawaii, the, uh, the descriptions of which later wound up in his book, Roughing It. On August 11th and 1877, the American astronomer Asaph Hall discovers the two moons of Mars, which he names Phobos and Deimos. This uh, astronomer also has the distinction of being the only person I've ever heard of with the name Asaph. We talked with uh, Planetary Radio's Matt Kaplan about the fact that the Russians are, are going to send a probe out to one of those moons, Phobos, take a chunk of it, and bring it back to Earth for examination, because it's widely believed that both of the moons of Mars are captured asteroids. It's just that nobody can figure out the math of how Mars could have captured them. But I suspect the fault lies with the mathematicians, because it sure looks as though captured they were. On August 11th, 1934, a group of federal prisoners classified as most dangerous arrived at Alcatraz Island off of San Francisco. The 22-acre rocky outcrop is just uh, 1.5 miles off the shore of San Francisco. And although three dozen attempts to escape were made, to this day no prisoner is known to have successfully gotten off of the rock. Although I think Clint Eastwood starred in a movie about three guys they think might have. And on August 11th, 1968, in England, the Beatles launched their new record label, Apple. I'm sure, Mr. Millen, you come up with an appropriate Beatles number. Number nine, number nine... Nine, yes, folks, <laughs> excellent selection. That has to be the one Beatles two no one ever cites as their favorite. Although we imagine Yoko still stands by it. 
My quote of the day from the aforementioned Mark Twain is, all generalizations, including this one, are false. While our quip of the day comes from Euripides, who once said, talk sense to a fool, and he calls you foolish. And our jokes of the day come from the Dave Barry calendar. And I realize sometimes it's a stretch to call these jokes, but, uh, but uh, we think the humor's there because, says Dave Barry, I'm still troubled that a company has placed the ashes of deceased people, including Timothy Leary, in lipstick-sized vials and send those vials into space. The vials could be picked up by alien beings. We know there are alien beings out there because we see them every week on Star Trek. They look sort of like human beings, but they wear huge quantities of makeup. They must have a voracious appetite for cosmetics. If they find a bunch of lipstick-sized vials, they'll probably conclude it's lipstick and try it on. If they like the particular shade, they'll come to Earth looking for more. I don't want my ashes sent into space. I want them disposed of right here on Earth, in a traditional, meaningful, and dignified manner. I want my ashes to be put tastefully in an urn, which would then be blessed at a somber religious ceremony, placed inside a mortar, and fired from close range at the headquarters of the Internal Revenue Service. As far as I'm concerned, a tasteful urn inscription would be, Audit this! Our stat of the day, according to the London Daily Mail, is that the average British tourist gains eight pounds during a two-week trip to the United States thanks to big portions and all-you-can-eat buffets. And as follow-up to the stat we had on the show a couple weeks back, which was that, according to The Economist magazine, the agents from the Bureau of Alcohol, Tobacco, Firearms, and Explosives permitted 2,000 heavy-duty firearms to be sold to buyers for Mexican drug cartels back in 2009. Their plan was to trace the weapons to high-ranking gang lieutenants and catch the big fish of the arms trade. Instead, the ATF lost track of at least 1,600 of the 2,000 weapons many of which were subsequently recovered at crime scenes in the U.S. and Mexico. But the follow-up is that according to Rupert Murdoch's New York Post, writer Michael Walsh said, that's because anti-gun liberals are likely to blame for this mess. Noting that the real objective of Fast and Furious wasn't to catch Mexican drug cartels, but to inflate the number of American guns recovered in Mexico and give the Obama administration a fresh excuse to crack down on U.S. gun dealers. Well, that's one theory. Commenting on Rupert Murdoch from a rather more reliable source, in this case the Columbia Journalism Review, Ryan Chittam noted in the wake of this uh, great scandal taking place in the UK that Murdoch's reporters and editors had bribed cops to hand over information on celebrities, royals, and crime victims. They hacked into a murdered 13-year-old's voicemail and erased possible evidence about her whereabouts. They destroyed troves of emails and documents and paid out millions of dollars in hush money. In the United States, News Corp has paid out more than $650 million to smaller rivals to settle allegations of thuggish, anti-competitive behavior. Noted the review, and yet Murdoch's defenders contend that what his company did was not that big a deal which is about as credible as the screaming headlines in one of his tabloids. You know, a while back we were doing a, a good news item on the program, a part I mean from our good and bad and ugly section. I think we may go back to that for a while, because according to New Scientist magazine, at last there's a bit of fishy good news. Cod have begun returning to Canadian seas where they were fished to near extinction in the early 1990s. 
This new finding shows that fishing bans are paying dividends, which could boost the annual calls to impose similar bans in European waters. According to Brian Petrie of the Bedford Institute of Oceanography in, in Dartmouth, Nova Scotia, cod is about a third of the way back to full recovery, and haddock is already back to historic biomass levels. They noted that cod prey on smaller plankton-eating fish whose populations exploded once the cod were gone. But the cod took longer than expected to return because those fish also ate cod eggs and larvae. At any rate, nature appears to be healing itself if we can just uh, lay off all of the poaching. And on that note, let's jump into the good, the bad, and the ugly. According to The Week magazine, it was a good week last week for cyclists. After Mayor Arturis Zuokas of Vilnius, Lithuania, used a tank to crush a Mercedes-Benz that was illegally parked in a bike lane. The mayor, an avid bike rider, warned that he would repeat the performance should motorists continue to disrespect bike lanes. And a bicycling correspondent, uh, Paul Dorn, if you're listening, uh, why don't you send us an email to let us know what you know about this. We know Paul's a huge advocate for bicycles and bicycling lanes, etc., but we're not sure he approves of using tanks to crush cars. Maybe he does. Paul? And on the other hand, it was a bad week last week for not using the privacy settings after fugitive Victor Burgos taunted police on his Facebook page, posting, Catch me if you can. I'm in Brooklyn. Cops quickly traced down Burgos to an apartment in Brooklyn where he was found sitting at a computer with his Facebook page open. And it was an ugly week last week for representative democracy when, this week, the Sacramento City Council decided to throw out the redistricting maps that had been drawn up There were four examples of these drawn up by a citizens panel. City council persons Steve Cohn and Sandy Sheedy lambasted these tentative maps and then produced their own at the city council meeting. Enraging Sacramento Mayor Kevin Johnson, who according to an article in the Sacramento Bee by Ryan Lillis, described Cohn's plan by saying, it's the council putting self-interests above public interests, and that's very disappointing. He went on to describe the process that led to Cohn's map approval as ridiculous and shenanigans. Adding, in reflecting on this word transparency, we throw that word around a lot. I don't think anything we've done today is transparent, and the public is not fooled by it. The council had voted 8-1 to earlier this year to create an advisory body and filled it with allies. That panel operated mostly out of the council's view, but with its support until it was revealed on, on July 26th that one of the four committee rep- recommended maps had been submitted anonymously, which apparently irked Sandy Sheedy. We will continue to follow these shenanigans. Speaking of political shenanigans, according to the Los Angeles Times, the California Medical Board failed to discipline 710 troubled doctors even as they were disciplined by hospitals, surgery centers, and other healthcare organizations in the state. This came out of a report by the Washington, D.C.-based nonprofit Public Citizen, which prompted Dr. Sidney Wolf, director of Public Citizen's Health Research Group, to ask, if the hospital or HMO has taken action, why hasn't the board? 
That's something that as a physician or patient, I'd be worried about. Hospitals rarely discipline doctors. When they do, it's usually for very serious infractions. Speaking on behalf of the California Medical Board, spokeswoman Jennifer Samoaj said, officials have reviewed the report, but more analysis is needed. Adding, we believe more data needs to be obtained, but like many state agencies, we have a 20% vacancy rate, and we're trying to focus on our core functions. And no, this correspondent has no idea what core functions take precedence over, <laughs> over disciplining troubled doctors. We're pretty sure that making coffee, holding meetings, and shuffling papers is probably not their core focus, or shouldn't be. She noted that board officials had been contacted by public citizen about investigating the report's findings, saying, we told them we would do it when we had the resources. The article did cite some interesting examples, such as... The doctor who got disciplined six times from 2005 to 2009 had his privileges suspended for providing substandard care and was considered, quote, unable to practice safely, unquote. In fact, he had his privileges suspended in 2009 for posing an immediate threat to health or safety. But uh, medical board didn't get around to doing anything about it. How about the doctor who faced discipline back in 1991 and subsequently had 15... 15 medical malpractice payouts totaling about 1.9 million between 93 and 2009 which included two cases including objects left behind after surgery apparently went undisciplined the article notes it took investigators more than 400 days on average to complete an investigation state law mandates the board take no more than 180 days now it turns out the medical board is funded by doctor licensing fees which i can tell you are pretty steep Every couple years, I've got to spend several hundred dollars to uh, keep my license current. Your board has a proposed budget of $55 million this year. Jerry Brown wants to borrow $9 million, wants to borrow $9 million from the board to help fill the state budget gap. Said Brown spokeswoman Elizabeth Ashford, and I love this part, it won't contribute to the backlog because in the event we did see an effect, we'd repay it. In fact, that's so good, I want to run through that one again. They want to take $9 million out of the 55 in the budget, and according to the Brown spokesperson, it won't contribute to the backlog because in the event we did see an effect, we'd repay it. This, folks, is called double talk. Of course, in fairness to the board, uh, the governor in 2008 borrowed, borrowed $6 million from the board to balance the budget, uh, which is a move the California Medical Association unsuccessfully sued to overturn, and uh, guess what? The money was never repaid. You know, when you, quote, borrow money that you're never going to repay, you know, you, you borrow really isn't the right word. This, unfortunately, is another story we will continue to follow. And speaking of doctors and public health, here's a story we need to spend a few minutes on. Article last month by Jillian Wong, reporting from China, noted that in China where someone is killed in traffic every five minutes, an entrepreneurial doctor has an unusual approach for making roads safer. Treat bad drivers like a disease. A disease you can diagnose before the driver even gets near a car. Yes, apparently Dr. Jin Hui Qing has spent nearly three decades trying to figure out why some motorists seem more accident-prone than others. He has translated his research into a lucrative business, selling his road safety program to Chinese municipalities. And evidently, at least one city using his methods reports a decline in traffic deaths. 
The doctor has studied the records of thousands of Chinese bus, van, and cab drivers and put dozens through neurologic tests while examining hundreds of blood samples. Since last year, he's been even trying to find gene markers for bad drivers. And dear listener, I think I know you well enough to know that at about this point in the story, you're thinking of some wisecrack about the fact that the drivers here are Chinese, aren't you? This correspondent is going to stay clear of that. But at any rate, Dr. Jin tries to target the root causes of crashes by identifying the physical or psychological traits of poor drivers, such as risk-taking or poor response time under stress, and seeks to keep them off the streets or ensure that they get adequate training. Apparently, the eastern Chinese city of Jinan adopted his system, and uh, police did report a decline in traffic deaths. And this company also sells products to about 400 other jurisdictions, and at least one other provincial capital is also interested in adopting this uh, three-pronged approach, according to company officials. Now, the writer of the article apparently went out to visit Dr. Jin, and notes, and I quote, On a recent drive with Jin through Hefei, China's road safety challenges were on display. Cars cruised down the wrong side of the street. Others mounted sidewalks to make illegal turns. Motorcyclists without helmets whizzed by or stopped short and pushed their bikes backward for a missed turn. Even Jin needed a reminder to wear the seatbelt in his shiny black Hummer. Noting he ignored the vehicle's insistent beeping. He's not alone, said writer Jillian Wong. Drivers in China rarely wear seatbelts, even in larger, more police cities such as Beijing. Of course, the, the hair-raising part of this article was the quote by Ann Yuang, the China County Director of Global Road Safety Partnership, who noted that in China, in general, I think each day there will be over 300 people killed on the roads, which equals one Boeing 747 aircraft crash every day. So, that's pretty serious. Anyway, last time this correspondent was in China, most people were on bicycles. If you've been there lately and uh, have something to say about the driving conditions, drop us a line at info at radioparallax.com. By the way, as we close out the segment, I have another bit of good news that I think we need to throw out. Not only are the cod doing well in the Atlantic, apparently the Delta smelt population is doing well in our Sacramento-San Joaquin Delta region. Data released a few weeks back by the California Department of Fish and Game indicate that the Delta smelt population has more than doubled compared to last year, and it is at its highest level since 2004. This article in the Sacramento Bee by Matt Weiser cautions that despite the increase, smelt numbers remain well below the highs that were seen in the 1970s, and the species is still considered at risk of extinction, suggesting a worrisome trend in water quality for the entire Delta. Matt noted it's long been known that greater river flows to the ocean benefit smelt, and this year's field survey reflects the fact that we had a very wet winter. The article notes that the smelt has been a focus of derision by some water diverters and politicians, especially in the San Joaquin Valley, because its fortunes control a delta water supply that serves 25 million Californians. And in the interests of uh, equal time, we would remind you that uh, last year we had editorial writer Bruce Bronstein, who uh, took an anti-Delta smelt position in the LA Times on this program to uh, do what we could to educate Bruce under the realities of the uh, fish populations up here. The article by Matt Weiser notes that some observers project water diversions from the Delta will set records this year, 
yet relatively few smelt have been killed by the pumping stations in the Delta. Well, it's a one-year bonus, but we'll take it, eh? And at that note, uh, let's take a short break. You're listening to Radio Parallax. I'm Douglas Everett. Let's come back and talk about uh, Cold War espionage, shall we? (laughs) 